I would draw your attention this morning to the last chapter of Micah, Micah chapter 7. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can turn there as we will be looking at this last chapter uh, this morning. We have been in the book of Micah now for some time with one short break last week. Next week, we're going to be looking at our Lord Jesus Christ's triumphal entry uh, for Palm Sunday. And then uh, we will have Easter and the uh, account of our Lord's uh, resurrection and how that affects us. And then we'll be turning to the book of 2 Corinthians. But for now, we're going to finish this great prophecy of Micah. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's word. For the word of our Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of our Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of our Lord is completely authoritative. Micah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the Lord will be desolate, or but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. 
The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts, that it would take deep root, that it would give us great hope, great encouragement, that we might see your mercy and your grace, that we might see how you have revealed them in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come now to the end of Micah's prophecy. And it is a fitting end for us in these times. Because life can be overwhelming. Even when we're not in the midst of a pandemic, there are still struggles in life. There are financial struggles, personal struggles. And you can feel alone. You can feel like no one understands you. We look at the world around us and we see all of the change that is coming and it unsettles us. But perhaps the greatest struggle is seeing evil and sin in the world. And if we're honest, seeing evil and sin in ourselves. Where can we find hope? Micah, after showing us the wickedness all around him, concludes with hope. It's a hope that is found in the Lord. It is found in who the Lord is. Because the Lord is the God of salvation. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things from this final chapter in Micah. First, we will look at the first seven verses and see the concern of God's people. Then we will see in verses 8 through 17, the confidence of God's people. And then finally, in verses 18 through 20, we will see the commitment of the Lord. Well, let's begin then by looking at the concern of God's people. And Micah starts with the reality of this concern for himself and for us. Now, Micah is not just looking around him. Remember the situation here. He knows that God is going to judge his people. Micah knows this because God is using Micah to announce this judgment, to pronounce it upon them. And so Micah begins with a reality check, we might call it. He starts with the sad state of affairs. And the first thing that he begins with is describing how he feels. He feels alone. Verse 1 begins, Woe is me, 
For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gathered, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. When Micah says, woe is me, this is different than when he uses this phrase, woe, in chapter 2. There it is to pronounce a judgment. Here it is rather a statement exclaiming sadness at life. And he describes his emotions, his state of mind, by using a word picture. That of a field after a harvest. Walking through the field and everything is gone. There's not one grape to be picked. There's not one fig to be taken. Now, we have to remember that this is not how things should be. God had given to his people a law in his word that they were to go through and gather the harvest, but they were not to glean it clean. They were to leave behind the straggling grapes and the, the few grains and and the fruit of the earth, so that the poor and the widow could come through and provide for themselves. It's not supposed to be blank. It's not supposed to be empty. But it is. Now it's all gone. Now, what Micah means by this, he explains in verse 2. He says, the godly has perished from the earth. You see, what Micah is concerned about is not just an empty field. He's looking out across the world, and he sees that there's no one left who's godly. That perhaps is... A bit of Elijah here in Micah. When Elijah looked out and he said, I am alone, Lord. I'm the only one left to worship you. Now we know that Elijah was wrong. There, The Lord had reserved to himself a thousand who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And we know that Micah is not alone as well. There is a remnant. Micah has talked about this. But that doesn't make a difference to Micah's state of mind here. Have you ever felt this alone? You should know that God understands that. And it may not help you to know that you're not absolutely alone, that there's a few other people around who share your predicament. But when we look out at the world and we see that there's no one to help us, that we feel alone, we have to remember that God understands our predicament. God has written that feeling into the Bible to make sure you know that he understands you. And remember that this is not the end. There's much more. The second thing that Micah describes is the danger around him. If there's no godly man left, there certainly are plenty of troublemakers. He says, they all lie in wait for blood in verse 2. Now, if you think your life is bad, listen to Micah. This is intentional wickedness. This is willful harm. Everyone around him is out hunting for blood, Micah says. In fact, that's what they're the best at. It's as if they've been training for it in verse 3. And among all of these people are the most powerful and connected. The prince, the judge, the great man. They are all out to get the godly. They are arrayed against Micah. There is real danger. And then Micah begins to describe the relationship dangers that are out in front of him. This is not just a political situation that Micah has to bear. It's not just spiritual isolation that he's putting up with. He has the strain of personal relationships in danger. 
You can't trust your neighbor, Micah says. You can't trust your friend. He says you don't even want to speak when the one that you love lies in your arms. Family relationships are breaking down. Fathers and sons are at each other's throats. Daughters and mothers are in conflict. Now this is very real. Jesus reminds us of this himself. It's true that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ will bring blessing to your relationships. There is no better way to strengthen your marriage than for both a husband and a wife to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and to seek Him for their strength. But being in Jesus Christ can also destroy relationships. Because Jesus separates believers from unbelievers. And so we have to understand that that conflict comes. This can be painful to see. So what does Micah do in the middle of all this? He's painted a pretty dark picture. Would we blame him if he just sat down and cried? Would we blame him if he gave up? I wouldn't blame him. I've been there. I've been ready to give up. But that's not what happens with Micah here. Micah stands up in the face of all of this with that great Bible word, but. But acknowledges that all of the problems are real and they're true. It doesn't try to wish them away, but in spite of that, Micah will stand. That, my friends, is the life of faith. The life of faith is not perfect harmony and wealth and health. It's not ease and comfort. It's standing by the Lord in the middle of the mess. It's knowing that that is the safest place to be. And Micah stands with an eagerness. He is expecting God's deliverance. He's not just resigned to stand there. No, he is eager to stand there. Verse 7 points this out with the verbs. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Look has the idea of setting a watch expectantly looking out and waiting for something to happen. Perhaps you've had this happen in your own homes. When dad is set to come home from work, how the children will line up and wait, knowing that he comes home at a certain time, looking out, looking perhaps at the driveway or down the street, waiting to see the sight of the car, ready and expectant for him to arrive home. Waiting reminds us that even when we have no ability to bring about a solution, we know that God can. And that God not only can, but He will. Micah also has a certainty that God will hear him. Notice the matter of factness that he gives to us. My God will hear me. In the worst of all situations, the believer trusts that the Lord has a plan and that he will deliver. Micah has said this for us. 
The second thing that we see is that Micah describes the confidence of God's people, the confidence that they have in the Lord. Micah continues on in hope. As he stands in the middle of trouble, he sees hope for the people of God and for himself. And so in verse 8, he warns his enemy not to rejoice. He says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. In essence, he's saying to his enemy, don't take too much from the circumstances around me. I'm not. You shouldn't either. Now, this is a great deal of confidence that Micah has. Not only does he believe that God will deliver, he shouts that out to his enemy. He is acknowledging that there is trouble before him that he is in. When I fall, when I sit in darkness, he's not wishing away reality. He knows that there is trouble before him, but clearly that is not the end. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Micah knows that he's a sinner. And he doesn't try and plead that he's better than others. He doesn't say, well, Lord, make things easier for me because I'm not like that prince. I'm not like that judge that takes the bribe. I'm not like the wicked people out there who are soiling your worship. I'm following after you. No, he doesn't plead his own case. He knows that he's in darkness because of his own actions. I think that's important for us to realize. That all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us are without sin. We all deserve judgment and condemnation. And Micah understands it. You should as well. Because when we understand the depth to which we have fallen, we understand the greatness of our God who picks us up. God will bring him out to the light, Micah says. He will be a light to me and he will bring me out to the light. The Lord is on his side. That again is faith. When you are in the dark, you have to trust the Lord as your light. When you are down, you, you have to know that it is the Lord who will lift you up. Do you have that hope today? Is your hope founded in the Lord your God? In his might, in his power, in his mercy, in his grace. Well, where is the Lord, people ask Micah. I'll tell you where, Micah says. He is building and establishing his people. And so in verse 11, we get this picture of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. So even before the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, Micah is predicting its rebuilding. How like God that is. To tell us what he will do even before we have experienced pain and loss. This itself, Jerusalem, is a picture of the church Jerusalem is the city of God, which in the New Testament, the church is called. Jerusalem is a picture of God's people, of the church of Jesus Christ. And so what Micah is telling you and me is that God will establish his church. He will build his church. Do you see that? 
Do you lose sight of what God is doing in the bad news of the day? Or instead, have you heard about the revival that's going on in Iran? Or about the growing church in Africa? Or how the church in China is flourishing in spite of persecution? God is at work in his church. Be encouraged. But it's more than just rebuilding. It would be one thing if God promised to rebuild what we had lost. God says, no, 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 I will do more. I will expand. Look at verse 12. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. What could make us more confident than to know that God will turn enemies into worshipers? Assyria and Egypt are the great enemies of Israel. And what God is telling Micah is that he's going to turn these great enemies into his people. He's going to expand his kingdom beyond anything that they thought possible. Now, if you think this is just something that is a dream and it would never happen, I would invite you to study the story of the life of Paul. Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He breathed out threats against the church, the book of Acts tells us. It's very likely that he not only saw that men were put to death, but women and children as well. He persecuted the church. He tried by his own admission to destroy it. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the Damascus road. And converted him. Gave him a new heart. And Paul became the greatest missionary that the church has ever known. The writer of so much of the New Testament the great theologian of the church. God used Paul not just to establish the church, but to build it beyond anything that anyone imagined. I don't know how God is going to use this current situation. But I do know he will. Why? Because I know that God is building and expanding his church. It's his church. He will establish it. And that gives me confidence for my life. Because my good is tied up with God's glory. And I need to focus on that. On the glory of God. Now this confidence from Micah leads Micah to prayer. Here in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, he says. Now, this is an important part of prayer. Prayer is not just a wish in the dark, hoping to get some relief. No, prayer is going to the Lord based on his promise and asking him to fulfill that promise. That's what prayer is. And so as you read the prayer of verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, you should think of the promise that God gave to Micah in chapter 5, verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah's pleading the promise that he's already been given in prayer. He says, Lord, you promised to shepherd your people. Carry that out now. God has promised to shepherd his flock. And Micah claims that promise. He also prays that the nations around him would be subdued by the power of God. Look at verse 16. 
The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. Now, this is in line with the concern that Micah has for life that is all around him that we saw in the first six verses of this chapter. And it's in line with his hope that his enemies will be brought to faith in verse 12. And what he does is he prays that they would be frustrated in their attempts to attack God's people in verse 16. That they would be ashamed of their might, that their might would be of no consequence against God's people. He prays that they would be shocked and put in wonder of what God has done. That's what it means for them to lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. He prays that they would be defeated and that they would come to the Lord trembling, knowing that God is powerful. That's what he's talking about here in verse 17. Do you know the common phrase, bites the dust? I think this is where this comes from. If it's not the origin of the phrase, it's certainly perfectly appropriate. That the enemies of the people of God will be defeated and that they will see the sovereignty of God. You see, Micah has confidence because of who God is and what he has revealed about himself. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. What God is saying to Micah and to you and to me today is that we can have confidence in him because of what he has already done. We know the type of God that God is. He is the God who cannot be countermanded by kings or nature or disease or even time. He is in complete control of his people. Do you pray like this? Do you pray that God will protect you? That he'll encourage you? Do you pray that God will provide for you when you don't know what to do? Do you pray that God would bring an end to conflict and attacks upon the church? Pray with a confidence because of the fact that God has shown himself is powerful. Well, Micah then turns to a third thing, the commitment of God in verses 18 and 20. And this is perhaps one of the most powerful endings of any book in the Bible. Micah asks and answers two questions for us. What does God do and why does God do it? He first asks, what does God do? And he ends on this incomparable high note. You have to remember all of the pronouncements against sin that Micah has made. Think of all the descriptions of hardship and pain that he has brought us. And now Micah comes full circle. He leaves us with a picture of what God delights to do. You remember that the mockers had asked in verse 10, Where is the Lord your God? Well, Micah asks a better question. Who is a God like you? Now, there's some irony here because Micah is actually giving us a play on his own name. His name means who is like the Lord. And so it's certainly appropriate and fitting that Micah is the one to bring this message. And he tells us that God is the one who brings forgiveness and grace. 
He forgives our sins. And he describes this forgiveness of sins in three ways. Or rather, he describes the nature of what's forgiven in three ways. First, he refers to iniquity. God pardons iniquity. Now, iniquity refers to guilt. Beloved, God doesn't pretend that you are better than you are. I think sometimes we have that act down pat. We pretend that we're smarter than we are, that we're more skilled athletically than we are, that we're better at school than we are, that we're more generous than we are, and so therefore we are deserving of good things. We tend to play up everything good we've ever done and forget about everything bad. But God is not like that. He doesn't violate his justice. He knows that we are bent and twisted. He knows that we are wrong. The second way that Micah refers to what God pardons or forgives is as transgression. The passing over of transgression in verse 18. Now, transgression has added the idea of rebellion, of a willful revolt against God and his ways. It describes our unwillingness to be ruled by God. And then the third way that Micah describes it to complete the picture is by talking about sin. He talks about our sins in verse 19. Now, sin is missing the mark. That is, it is not being what we were created to be. It's falling short of God's glory and his purpose. So what does God do with these iniquities, these transgressions, these sins? He forgives them. Now, what does this mean? Micah tells us first that he pardons. Now, the picture you should have in your mind from the scriptures of pardoning is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is when the high priest would take a goat and he would conceptually take the sins of all of the people and place them upon the goat and then send the goat out from the city into the wilderness. And the idea here is the taking off of sin and iniquity and placing it on another so that we do not experience it anymore. God has done that, not in a goat, but in Jesus. He doesn't wink at your sin. He sees it in all of its horror, and he takes it, and he puts it on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know forgiveness because our sin is taken away from us. Jesus bears our sin because he is God himself. The second thing that Micah describes with forgiveness is that God passes over transgression. Now, as soon as you hear that, another Bible story should come to your mind, that of the Passover. And how in Egypt, before the 10th plague hit Egypt, before God freed his people from Pharaoh and Egypt, that God told Israel to slaughter the lambs and to eat the Passover and to take the blood and to put it upon the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them, that it would not visit them, that they would not receive the due recompense of their sins. God passes us over. He doesn't give us what we deserve. There's a saying that 
I think in some senses has become trite, but it's very true. When someone asks you, how are you doing? There's a, an appropriate answer. Better than I deserve. And that's always true. Because what we deserve is condemnation, death, and hell. Jesus experienced condemnation and death so that you would not have to. If you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will pass you over. He will pass over your sins. You will not receive the judgment that you so richly deserve. But instead, you will experience forgiveness and grace. God is gracious and forgiving. There is no one like God. All the other so-called gods require sacrifice of you. They make you earn your place. Allah requires you to perform numerous rituals, to work so that you can hope to find peace. And even when you have worked, you have no idea if you have done enough. The Eastern gods require you to live life over and over and over again, constantly reincarnating so that you can earn your salvation. And this is an endless cycle without any assurance that you will ever arrive. But not the Lord. He doesn't ask you to work. He gives grace. Because if it's of work, it's not of grace. The Lord sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven. Your guilt was put on Jesus. He paid for your rebellion. He did what you cannot. Do you believe that? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Now we might say to Micah, why? Why would God do this? After all, if someone's done something wrong, they should be punished. We think of this with others. We think that others' failures and we want them to see justice. But we forget about ourselves. We've seen this even here in our current crisis. We see on the news people going to beaches or gathering together at parties. And we say they should be punished for this. They're not social distancing. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're putting us all at risk. And we say that while we're standing two feet from someone else. Or while we go out to the store. You see, we're far quicker to judge others than we are to judge ourselves. You have to understand who God is, Micah says. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. Why? Because that's who he is. He delights in unfailing love, in steadfast love. That is what gives God pleasure. He doesn't have to be bribed. He doesn't have to be tricked. He doesn't have to be twisted because God delights in mercy and love. Do you know that about God? Or are you afraid of God? Martin Luther was. Are you afraid that you'll never be good enough or that your sins are just too great? Luther had to come to the place where he realized that he did not need to fear God in Jesus. Because in Jesus, he would experience mercy 
and grace. Believe now and today that God delights in mercy. That is your hope. It's a sure hope. God is eager to show mercy. He's so eager that he sent his son to die to provide forgiveness. God is a God of compassion. God wants you to know the blessing of his mercy and grace. Look at the two images that Micah uses of crushing your iniquities underfoot, of casting sins into the depths. Something to never be seen again. Could there be any clearer way of expressing the finality of forgiveness in Christ? In conclusion, life is hard. If we're honest, it's hard because we fall short. You don't have it all together. You are not who you were created to be. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Jesus has accomplished what you couldn't. He's purchased forgiveness and grace for you, if only you believe. Why? I don't know. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I can only tell you that you can have mercy and grace because of Jesus. Because that's who God is. He's a God who delights in grace and compassion, who delights in mercy. He's calling you now. Will you hear him? Will you come? Will you worship him for who he is? There's no one like the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.